Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. <laughs> I'm David Bax. Thank you for listening, oh, David. Uh, I'm tickled. <laughs> how you doing? Um, here, here's how I'm doing. Okay. Um, I know we have we have a top of show thing, but actually a couple things I need to catch up on. Okay. Number one, ladies and gentlemen, I am I'm eating crow because. I, Here's what I was thinking for the for days. I was like, "Well, we've got our top of the show discussion, and then something else <laughs> something comes else along." Happened. Yes, but yeah. just to catch the listener up, uh, full mea culpa. I have been like the smug asshole that I am, making fun of Hamilton for about a year and a half, or maybe about a, about a year. However, however long I've been making fun of it and getting annoyed by it. And I decided this week at work, uh, I had a lot of work that was going to keep me at my desk for a long time. So, and the Hamilton mixtape came out. So I was like, you know what? Let me actually give Hamilton a shot as opposed to listening to the handful of songs I listened to and decided it was corny. Um, now what is the mixtape? What does that mean? Uh, it's a bunch of sort of reworkings of songs from Hamilton. I think some, maybe some new songs. I haven't listened to the whole thing, but it's, it's not just the cast. It's like rappers like Nas and chance, the rapper and all these people are involved in, um, doing this, this mixtape. Uh, and I didn't listen to that. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll make fun of that. Um, but I watched, uh, so I listened to all two and a half hours. It's really long. I didn't know that of Hamilton. And, uh, yeah, I gotta admit you guys were all right. It's really, really great. What I have heard and it just, I think it's fine, but honestly, everything about it is like, well, I don't like show tunes, and I'm not a big fan of rap. So I'm like, that's this is... Is I do like show tunes, as you know. Right. But I got it in my head that this was the Jesus Christ Superstar. Right. Like, the hip-hop version of Jesus Christ Superstar. Because I don't like Jesus Christ Superstar, <laughs> and I don't like... Angel Lloyd Webber's like, like that's considered like a rock opera, but like that's not rock by yeah. any standards. And so yeah. that's what I got in my head. I was like, this is going to be like fake hip hop. It's going to be super corny. And you know what? If you listen to just the first song on its own, it bears that out. Like it is a corny and it has like, uh, the part where Aaron Burr is like, who am I? I'm the damn fool who shot him. And I, every time I watched that, <laughs> I'd listen to that. Cause that's, that's what the, that, that line on its own was enough to convince me yeah. for a year that I was right. And that yeah. Hamilton was shitty. Everything about so stupid. It, everything about it, uh, just drips of like a middle school teacher trying to make something, uh, yeah. like relevant to his students. Yes. That's exactly what I thought. And that, that, again, that first song really does bear that out. So in my defense, if I, uh, you know, it does not start off on its best foot, but then it gets, it could just gets really good. Um, but that's not, we, that's not what we're talking about. I just wanted to offer that mea culpa to listeners uh, and say, uh, yeah, I was wrong. Turns out Hamilton's good. Uh, incidentally, uh, a while ago when like the Hamilton cast like uh, spoke to uh, Mike Pence when he was right. in the audience, yeah. that whole thing, there was... Uh, well, they you know, spoke to his back as he was leaving. Right, yes. <laughs> uh, and there was... Uh, first off, I thought his, uh, his reaction was pretty uh, nice where he said, he goes, Hey, he goes, you know what? It didn't bother me at all. It didn't offend me. Like they have the right to do that. It's fine. Yeah, of course. It's Trump's response. That was the issue. But yeah. there were a lot of like a uh, conservative yeah, jokes people are worried about. I mean, I know I like, I don't want to, I know you're the conservative, but people are worried about people normalizing Donald Trump. But I worry that Donald Trump's presence will normalize people like Mike Pence, whom I have plenty of problems with on their own. Yeah. I, and part of me is just like, well, he's part, I think like Trump has caused me to uh, embrace the concept of the establishment. Um, where I'm just like, well, he's, you know, he's part of it. So he won't go that far afield, but that's not the point. The point is there is a number of, uh, 
of uh, conservative commentators that, that were commenting on the, the whole Hamilton thing. And they said, they said, you know, you think that they would learn from Hamilton and not piss off a vice president. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny. So um, anyway, okay. Anyway, and then another thing I want to mention, um, and this is, uh, this is just a funny thing that happened. I won't spend too much time on it, but you know how I'm real guarded about what I do for a living. Yes. Well, um, at least one listener, uh, now knows exactly what I do for a living. Uh, cause I, I, I don't know. I, I'm sure I've mentioned it, but I got uh, promoted at work over the summer. Um, and so I have some new duties and so my boss like looped me in an email with a company we work with in, in the UK and was like, David will be handling this stuff from now on. And then this guy, uh, Gareth, uh, responded and said, like took my boss off and just like, to me was like, is this David? battleship pretension backs <laughs> and so now it's, so it's like great like we've been email, emailing back and forth about movies gareth gareth is an awesome guy but it is weird that it's like gareth i'm gonna trust you with the secret yeah. of what i do for a living because i like to keep it secret yeah oh he's um, got he's got uh keys to the kingdom there you yeah know. he's got some leverage yeah hey uh gareth uh, would you like a whole bunch of blu-rays <laughs> that uh, we're not gonna review uh yeah that's true we have some old uh stuff that was we get a lot of i'm I've gotten more particular about what I ask for because I yeah. found that we, I was asking for stuff that wasn't necessarily reviews of which weren't necessarily getting as much traction on the website. Yeah. Um, but there are still some companies who will just send us Blu-rays whether we ask for them or not. And so yeah. we do have a lot of Blu-rays we don't intend to review. It doesn't necessarily mean they're bad movies, just yeah. that we don't intend to review them. Yeah, it's frustrating in a moment like that because just, you know, when you when you build a, a website, and God help me, I'm about to say this, when you're building a brand... Um, yeah, over the over months and years, you you kind of have a try to figure out a what is it, what is this, and for a while it's like okay, quantity, not over quality, but let's let's just everything that is sent to us, like we'll we'll review it because we appreciate it, and then it just gets to a point of like, well, hang on a second, I don't know about that. Yeah, but yeah, uh, yeah, I don't want to get too far down that, that yeah that's because we actually have something important to talk about um we that do came up just just yesterday um and we actually are recording like less than 24 hours before the episode will go off which is rare um yeah it's a good thing in many in many ways it's a good thing that this uh that our movie journal wound up being close to four hours long and we didn't get a chance to record the episode that night because this is a thing worth talking about yeah so um uh, an interview with um uh, Bernardo Bertolucci, is mm-hmm. that, am I saying that? Right? That's yeah. right. Um, came out in which he discussed the the making of Last Tango in Paris and um, specifically the infamous uh, butter scene, yeah. the anal sex butter scene. Um, and he revealed, or well, let's put a pin in that actually, uh, yeah. but he revealed that um, uh, Maria Schneider was not made aware beforehand of what was going to happen yeah. while the cameras uh, were were rolling and now i say let's put a, put a pin in that because when i say revealed like maria it turns out maria schneider has talked about this and, yeah um her account is slightly different where she said uh she i mean she died in 2011 but she said um that she was made aware of it like immediately before and as a 19 year old rookie didn't feel like she had yeah. the option to say no so to me that's just semantics like if someone says yeah. i'm about to sexually assault you right before they sexually assault you it doesn't make it any less sexual assault yeah. you know what i mean yeah in real life it's just like hey quick heads up uh yeah that's not <laughs> that's not a legal defense uh, yeah and this is something that wasn't you know that those details weren't in the script so when she signed the contract she didn't know she was signing on right. for that kind of um 
scene and for that to take place. Uh, and I've found myself, uh, outraged, yeah. um, by, by this. Um, and certainly because this is, you know, a 40 year old, a 48 year old man is what Marlon yeah. Brando was at the time. I don't know how old Bertolucci was at the time, but Maria Schneider was 19. Yeah. Um, this is, it's disgusting and it's reprehensible. Uh, and this is a particularly reprehensible example, um, of something that I want to, that, that has bothered me before. Um, and I don't know why, uh, it's, I, mean, I do know, I, mean, I have an idea why it seems to happen to actresses more than actors. Sure. Um, but you hear about like the making of Kramer versus Kramer and the way that Dustin Hoffman, like when cameras weren't rolling, really treated Meryl Streep like Meryl Streep, like shit, like, in uh, for like me- method purposes and, and, method, stuff? and like, yeah. you know, constantly talking about John Cazale, you know, um, who oh, yeah. uh, like really upsetting ways to get the, to get the reaction out of, out of yeah. her. And I find that so, um, disrespectful. Um, obviously it's disrespectful, but, um, to me, an actress is not a piece of equipment to be manipulated with, to get the reaction you want. You right. hired a professional actress yeah. to act. So if you need a certain reaction, yeah. then it's your job as a director to direct the and trust the professional actor that you've hired to give you that. Like this, you know, you, this isn't adjusting a light. This is a human being yeah. who has a skill set for whom she has been hired. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, I, I think it, I, I do think there's a lot of sexism in the way that it tends to happen to actresses more than act more than actors. Um, but it, uh, just generally upsets me in this last tango in Paris, uh, reaction or, or, or situation is obviously even more beyond the pale. Um, yeah. and, uh, I mean, I, I guess uh, I don't know what we can do, I don't know what we can do at this point, but uh, uh, except for what I did, which is immediately take down the posters. One of the first th- thoughts I had was, um, "What's David going to do with that poster?" Yeah. Um, so I yeah I took down. I told my wife about it, and uh, she was obviously disgusted, but also she was like, didn't know much about Last Hang in Paris. When I told her what the movie was, she was like, "I don't even think you should have had that poster <laughs> yeah. to begin with." But I have always liked that movie. Plus the the poster that I have is an original poster that I got like a wow. really good deal on. Like, it's, yeah. um, I have it up next to my judgment at Nuremberg poster. I got them both at the same sale. They're both original posters. Wow. Um, uh, and so part of it was just the collector you sure. know, aspect, uh, of that. But, um, that poster is down now no. and facing the wall yeah. to be replaced <laughs> with what do you know yet? Uh, well, I, I, I don't want to say this on the, you know, too much. Uh, I was like, I, I am like, I'm going to get something, but I get the impression that maybe, uh, my wife will surprise me at Christmas time oh, with okay. something. Cause she was like, well, what are the dimensions of that poster frame? <laughs> oh, got it. Yeah. Um, but I think I, you know, we did talk about it's like, Oh no, Milo and Otis. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's funny on so many levels to me. Um, not to compare but, the two, obviously, um, like one's animals, but yeah. Still. <laughs> uh, but no, I, we did talk about the idea of replacing it with something that is uh, uh, a, 
a feminist film or, or the, where the poster features a strong female lead mm-hmm. to sort of counterbalance the fact Foxy that I've, Brown <laughs> yeah, to, to kind of balance the fact that I've had for nearly 10 years, yeah. uh, this lasting on Paris poster on the wall in, in our, uh, den slash office. Uh, anyway, um, I've talked at length about this, um, yeah. uh, and you had predictions about what, uh, whether my reaction would be the same as yours. Yeah. It would be re- the reaction is the same, but as far as how we talk about it, I had a thought. Okay. It's the first place my mind went. Okay. My mind went two places. Number one, the, the idea of separating the art from the artist, this to me is not part of that conversation because this is literally the artist creating art in a horrible way. Right. And so now right. that's always connected. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like I, you know, I don't think I can ever watch the movie again because I'm, right. actu- I'm actually watching an assault. It's not like if I'm, if you're watching a Mel Gibson movie, he's not. No. Well, you can make the case in Passion of the Christ that he's being openly anti-Semitic. <laughs> sure. But if you're watching Apocalypto, you, you know, you don't have to listen to him, you know, uh, rant, you know, racist, anti-Semitic, uh, sexist things. Right. You can try to separate. But this, yeah, you're right. There's no separation because yeah. the act that is disgusting about it is what you're seeing on film. Yeah. And the so that was the second thought I had. The first thought I had is... Richard Donner, oh, when he made The Omen. I did think about this, yeah. That, like, it, the commentary on The Omen, as much as I don't actually care for the film, was instructive in a it's number a of ways. Movie. It's a fun movie. But it's not that great. And his, his commentary is very interesting. And one of the yeah, things... It's him and um, Stuart Baird, the editor. Uh, yes, together, that's right, right? that's right. It's, it's, a, it's one of my favorite commentaries from back when I used to listen to commentaries. Yeah, I don't listen to any anymore, yeah. except uh, I, I'll sometimes listen to a critic's commentary. Oh, yeah. um, but he brings up this thing we've talked about on the show before. Yeah. That there comes a moment when a character like drops a, a fish bowl with a goldfish in well, it, right? Well, she's pushed over the balcony that's right. and like the balcony breaks and the table yeah. with the fish bowl. So she and the fish bowl right. fall o- over the balcony yeah. at the same time. It's a uh, overhead shot in slow motion of her yeah. falling to the floor. And you see the, the shattered glass of the fishbowl. And then like the goldfish just like laying there on the floor. And Richard Donner said, and he goes, now that's a fake fish. And he said, I'm not going to kill a goldfish for a movie. Yeah. In the midst of now, I would say Richard Donner tends to be more mainstream in, in his sensibilities, but like, but fun. But what was that? He's fun. Yeah. He's mainstream, but he's not a hack at all. Right. What I mean and to say is that like, I don't, th- he doesn't strike me as the type that would take himself too seriously. Oh, I see. Um, and he's somebody who I think like in that moment, like, yeah, I recognize the, that a goldfish doesn't have maybe the most fulfilling life in the world, <laughs> but it's literally like, I am not going to kill even the smallest living thing mm-hmm. so that this can happen. Right. And it's, you know, that's amazing to me. Yeah. And, and, I'm, and I'm glad you brought this up because I did have that, have this exact thought. And, and I thought like, look, I love movies, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I love seeing like a really raw scene. That butter scene is, I mean, now we know why, Yeah, but it's, it's intense. There's a lot going on there emotionally. I understand it's a, it's a pivotal scene of the film, uh, emotionally. And so I get it. And I, I like those scenes, but at the same time, it's not worth, it's not worth, you know, traumatizing one of your, anybody involved, Yeah, you know, yeah. and if, and this, I'll extend this to, you know, uh, uh, 
Christian Bale yelling at the DP on uh, on Terminator Salvation, right? Uh-huh. It was a DP he yelled at, right? Yeah. And just like basically just demeaning somebody and just getting so angry. And his whole thing is, is like, I'm acting here, but the the DP was being disrespectful of his craft. Yes, that is, that is, it's shitty. And, but that seems like the kind of thing I'm not saying don't get mad. Mm -hmm. I'm saying that like to degrade somebody in front of everybody else, like, do you think that DP is going to have any authority after that? Now that the lead actor is torn into him, like that's for, that's like, Hey, Mick G let's go to your office with this guy, with this. Well, Mick G didn't have anything to fucking say to the guy. (laughs) Remember? You got anything to fucking say to this guy, Mick G? Yeah. And so uh, I know. Yeah, you're right. It is awful. Uh, Christian Bale should not have reacted that way, but that there's more layers to that than just simply. He was an asshole. Like that is one of my favorite of those. Yes. It's up there with the Casey Kasem, which is a classic. Sure. Uh, Orson Welles. Orson Welles. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Those are, those are the big ones. Obviously Bill O'Reilly. Uh, you yeah. Know. <laughs> and then, uh, who is it? Is it, uh, was it Paul Anka? Uh, that, that thing came out. It was real, relatively new. Which one is that? That's the one where he's, uh, I was made aware of it by, uh, Dana Gould, uh-huh. uh, where you just hear, uh, I think it's Paul Anka, like yelling at his band. And, oh no, and, that's buddy guy. I was going to say, the buddy guy ones are the best. Well, okay. No, but I think that, I think it's, I think it's Paul Anka who says like, when I slice, I slice like a fucking hammer. Oh yeah. That's not him. Okay. So I think that's Paul Anka. And one of the things Wait, did I say, buddy guy, I think I meant buddy rich. I always oh, say, buddy them, rich, buddy I always rich. say them backwards. Um, um, but one of the other things that, uh, <laughs> he's, one of the things as he's yelling at his band members, cause they're on tour and he's like, he goes, he goes, you, he goes, you, you think that you're, you know, indispensable. It's like, he goes, he goes, no way. He goes, you do this one more time and that's it. He goes, he goes, he goes, I'll take you as far as Cleveland and you got it. <laughs> it's like, he doesn't necessarily, it's like, um, I guess you got it means you're off the tour. We're going to, we're going to leave you in Cleveland. Yeah. I don't know. Well, the buddy rich ones are the ones we're getting off topic but yeah. that's the ones that um jerry seinfeld's a big fan of because you'll find oh, yeah. quotes yeah uh, i'll show you what it's like there are three yeah i'll take you outside and i'll show you what it's like yeah there's um the one that uh uh frank uh frank costanza says uh that guy that is not my type of guy right and then um my favorite yeah. is when the uh uh, Jerry says that about um, Banya, but Buddy Rich is talking about the horn players like vamping. Yeah. And he's like, you do that again, I'll cut the mics. And then you will see how you do up, up there. there without all the assistance. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we're, we're way off. Well, and we're, and that's the thing we're laughing about. It. It's fun to laugh about these things, but at the same time, like, you know, and, and also like, obviously like a physical element is, is worse than, uh, a verbal element, but this idea, it's like, look, even the most intense thing that you're doing, even the most intense art that you're making, if you need to punish yourself to make it happen, mm-hmm. fine, go ahead. But if you, I don't know, when you start punishing other people, either psychologically or certainly physically, it just, I say this as somebody that values art above almost everything else. Uh, it's just not worth it. You know, if, if it, it's, I agree, it's not worth the life of a goldfish. It certainly is not worth the, the physical and psychological safety of a young girl, Yeah, you know, yeah. and just, ugh, no, okay. thank you. So I'm glad we're all, uh, against that. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, um, 
Let's pay some bills. Absolutely. So this episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $5.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Now... Right now at Mubi, you can watch Rachel Lang's Anna Trilogy, which consists of two short films. Uh, one is called For You, I Will Fight, and the other is called White Turnips Make It Hard to Sleep. So those are the two short films. And then her her new feature, Baden Baden, which I've talked about the last couple mm-hmm. of weeks. So these films follow the young life of Anna, a young unisex girl. And I'm not sure. I feel bad. I don't know what unisex mean, means. Yeah, I don't know what that means either. Um, I'm sure it'll explain it in the in the films. Uh, as she navigates the toils and travails of young adolescents and difficult relationships. A delightful balance of comedy and tragedy, the Anna Trilogy evokes Truffaut's Antoine Doinel series. So, those, so you can see all three of them at Mubi. And I believe the, the Baden Baden, the uh, feature, I believe that's exclusive. I don't think you can find that anywhere else. So, all right, these films and more are, are available at Mubi right now. And there is also a special offer for listeners of Battleship Pretension. You can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com. That's M-U-B-I.com slash Battleship to redeem now. And I want to tell you about the earbuds that you can get over there at tweakedaudio.com. Uh, they're fantastic. They look great and they sound great. They're professional quality earbuds. Uh, they come in a variety of styles and colors, uh, all of which, like I said, look and sound great. And they're available at a low, low price at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Let's get into it, shall we? Indeed. Now, we don't have a lot of time because we're very busy people. Yes. So we're going to do a real I've got easy topic. I have 11 more pages of a paper to write, and that's just to meet the, meet the minimum. I have to... Uh, go to one of those Benihana type places today. <laughs> it's my sister-in-law's birthday. Oh, well, that's where I'm going to write this paper, Dave. <laughs> uh, it's my sister-in-law's birthday, so I will be, um, yeah, watching chefs, you know, light onions on fire and sure. flip stuff into the air and, and all that stuff. Uh, but, uh, so we thought we'd phone it in. That's right. Um, uh, and what that means is we're going to talk about uh, some of our favorite um, phone call scenes. Yeah. Now, my first, what I wanted to do, but I couldn't find enough examples, is to talk about movies where famous people are, like, not animated movies, but where famous people are voice-only performances. Do you know what I mean? But there aren't that many. Like, unless so you go not, to, not animated. Right. But I'm talking about, like, if you go to, if you go into TV, Frasier would do that all the time. Sure, like sure. Call in. Um, and then there's the classic example, uh, a pre-famous Holly Hunter uh, is on the answering machine in Blood Simple. Um, oh, I don't think I knew that. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's that's who. Yeah, yeah. pre-fame Holly Hunter is okay. the one who. Uh, it's yeah. like there's a lot of examples in her. 
Uh, sure. Her would be one. Yeah. Where you've got Kristen Wiig, Brian Cox, and obviously, um, Scarlett Scarlett Johansson. Johansson. Yeah. Um, but there weren't as many, so I wanted, so I decided to do phone call scenes. Okay. Uh, instead, which led me to, uh, right off the bat, you know, I mean, we're going to talk about some, you know, some newer movies and some older movies. Yeah. Um, but right off the bat is a movie that we have done a commentary for that is maybe my favorite phone call scene in the history of cinema, oh, sure. which is the opening of scream. Right. Um, yes. I'm not sure if that's on your list. Uh, yes. It's, it's very near the top. Uh, Oh, you ranked yours. Um, uh, it's, or it's, it's just the order, the order you thought of them. The, the order I thought that's what of it is them. for me. And it is the top one. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that's a, a scene that takes place entirely over the phone. Mm. Um, and I guess what I want to talk about is that, uh, it, no, it's not exactly the, uh, hacky, like montage of internet research and typing the uh, type of thing we see, see in movies, but talking on the phone isn't nece- necessarily that cinematic. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, especially uh, when in this case you can only see one half, Yeah. but Wes Craven uses that, um, to ramp up the tension. The fact yeah. that we never see, the other person we never see ghost face you know we didn't know he was called that then we didn't yeah. even know what he looked like uh, until later in that scene um we don't see him talking on the phone yeah uh and so the the tension is ra- ramped up because we're um we're only seeing it from drew drew barrymore's point of view we're only learning that this is a threat at the same time that she is you know because she's like playful about it at first yeah it, you know she's joking around uh, and then, uh, over the course of that, which I, you know, I'm the millionth person to say that the opening of scream could stand as a short film on its own. Sure. Um, and it's paced so, so perfectly and the, the reveals happen and it gets more and more horrific. Um, and then it culminates spoiler with probably the biggest name star in the movie getting pretty brutally killed on camera. Yeah. Uh, it's, that's a fact. Scream is one of those movies that I didn't like the first time. And now I feel like I'm, you didn't I, like it. The yeah, first time. I, I feel like I have to apologize for that every time because I love it more every time I watch it. Yeah. Uh, that I feel like I have to keep atoning for the fact that I yeah. didn't get it as a 17 year old or whatever. Well, and there's that scene where Ghostface is like, I'm the damn fool that killed her, <laughs> you know, which you historically do not enjoy that sentiment. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on the scream phone call? Here's what I think is so interesting about it is I think most, some of the best horror movies take something you like and not even something you like, something you don't even think about taking a shower, Uh going into the ocean, you know, to like swim or just, you know, commit suicide, I guess, just walking into it very dramatically. Yeah. Um, well, you know, the, you know, the, uh, whenever people talk about like walking into the ocean as a form of suicide, the artist, I'm forgetting his name now, who did the little interstitial things in punch drunk love, mm -hmm. you know, those little like visual arts. That's how he died. He, he walked into the ocean. That's a lot of... So I always think, like, when it came up on Mad Men, the idea, yeah. there was that, that the ad for the hotel in Hawaii yeah. that people misinterpreted were like, this kind of looks like maybe he walked into the ocean and killed yeah. himself. Um, I always think of that artist, because that is... His name was Jeremy something. I can't remember his last name. And that that's obviously... Obviously, that's very tragic, but at the, at the same time, it's like, I didn't know that was something that happened outside of movies. Everything <laughs> yeah. about... It just seems so cinematic. Yeah. Uh, but no, I guess people do it in real life. Um and apparently, um, suicide by drowning is sometimes referred to as a ghost bath. I've heard. Oh. I just learned that this week because there's a band that I've, that I'm into and yeah. have been into for over a year, I would say called ghost bath. And I only just, just this, uh, 
this week <laughs> found out what that means see and that's the thing is uh because you have that to contextualize it it sounds uh-huh. like oh that's very cryptic but if somebody if there if you if there was a movie called ghost bath and you didn't know <laughs> what that meant then suddenly it's like this is not that frightening to me <laughs> yeah. stay out of the bathroom man uh i know you all have you got you have to go eventually i get it but um but that's the thing is so horror movies can free can freak you out about the most mundane things and with scream it's literally someone called and you answered the phone and now this person it feels like uh an uh, an invasion Mm -hmm. like the person they're not inside the house yet but they kind of are because and you sort of let them in by answering the phone Yeah, yeah and yeah you can hang up and then they're out of there but not anymore because now they're in your head. Yeah. And that idea is so fascinating to me because what, a, what a, what can be cinematic about a phone call scene. And there are some where you actually don't hear the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we'll get to those, but the ones in which you do hear the other side, it can be cinematic because the voices that you're hearing could just as easily be, you know, a, a voice ringing inside their head, you know, and it's some, not literally obviously, but, um, I don't know. It, they might as well be reacting to something internally. Uh, and you just happen to be hearing it. You're mm-hmm. being let in on that. And it's such a, and it's also a great way to make you connect with the character because if you're simply sitting outside and watching them, you shouldn't be able to hear that, that the other side of that conversation, but just by the fact, just the fact that you're hearing it, causes identification with the character. So I don't know. There's a lot, there's a lot of potential to these, to these scenes. And Mm -hmm. I think scream, you know, whoever thought that a phone could be so, so frightening. Yeah. And to the point where she hangs up and then, you know, he calls back and hangs up and then it gets to the point that once the phone rings, that's enough to make her freak out. Yeah. You know, the phone itself is now a weapon being used. Yeah. It it just, uh, I, I love, I love that movie so much. And a big part of that scene to get away just to get away from the phone thing it was ooh, it was like Wes Craven like reminding us that he still got it you know what I mean because he had made like Nightmare on Elm Street and then like the idea of a Wes Craven film had been what it was you know I mean, he'd made he you know tested himself for you know stepped outside the boundaries a little but it, it was like it was essentially a new generation of potential yeah. viewers um, who maybe you know once once the idea of Freddy Krueger is in the conscience of the public then it's it's automatically less scary yeah do you know what i mean yeah absolutely uh, and so it was Wes craven re-establishing himself for a new uh generation of potential yeah. horror fans uh it's yeah. a fantastic scene but okay i have two places i want to go i'm not sure which way to go i have okay. three places okay you know i want to stick to 90s well either way uh, all, all of these are sticking to the 90s okay do i want to talk about another another scary one okay or do i want to talk about another one that could work as a short film on its own Okay. Uh, so I think I'm going to go with the second one. Okay. And this is one like you talked about. You never, you never hear the, well, actually that's not true. At the very end, you do finally hear the other person talking. Okay. Uh, but this is from swingers. Um, uh, which, which again, still I still haven't, haven't seen. seen. So there's a part where, um, John Favreau's character, he gets a girl's number at a, at a bar at a party or whatever. I don't remember. And then he goes home, he gets home and calls her that night, like, mm. which is already, as we've learned within the movie, a mistake. You're supposed to wait, uh, no. two or three days or I can't remember what the rule is now. Um, but he calls, she doesn't answer. He leaves a message. Then he thinks better, you know, it thinks better of what he said. He calls, 
he leaves another message. He, he keeps getting himself in deeper and having, yeah. he basically like just completely ruins a, a relationship that didn't even exist yet yeah. within the, uh, the, 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 within the course of leaving voicemail after voice. I guess we wouldn't call him voicemail. It was an actual answering machine then. Yeah. So, uh, message after message. And then on the, the final time he calls, she picks up and says, don't ever call me again. <laughs> and that's how the scene ends. Oh, it's it, very sad. It, it's a, it's, but it's a terrific little short. It's like a sketch. It, yeah. really, you know, it's like a, a comedic, uh, sketch. Yeah. That actually has a beginning, middle and end, which is like what the best, the best sketches do. Right. Which yeah. is why, you know, sketch shows like kids in the hall will, will always be better uh, than Saturday night live. You know, Saturday night live has produced some good stuff, Yeah, but I feel like especially in later years, Saturday night live tends to have a premise and then just here's eight minutes. Saturday yeah. night live sketches are always too long. So it's like, here's six to eight minutes of riffing on this premise and then it's over. Whereas kids in the hall or Mr. Show would like have a beginning, middle and end to the sketch. Yeah. And you know, nine times out of 10, if an SNL sketch works, it's because it is timed out well. And by the time it's over, you actually find yourself wanting it to go on longer and, or you feel it's like they have wrung everything they can out of the sketch and now it's over. Okay, good. That's exactly as it should be. Yeah. Or you get something or you get a sketch that goes on too long and is so absurd. That's the other, that's the one time out of 10 where it's so ridiculous that it's just like, I want this to go on for the rest of my life. Yeah. There was one, this was the first time Zach Galifianakis hosted. Okay. There was one where I think it was he and Kristen Wiig played a couple who were buying a home and the, and the realtor was showing them a home. But the only thing they cared about was bidets. <laughs> <laughs> like how many bidets were in the bathroom. And, uh, uh, like, and she was like, and she was like, the, the realtor is like, it's only, you know, uh, uh, 10 minutes from the hospital in case you need that. And like, well, is there a bidet at the hospital? <laughs> like the own, the whole sketch is about them just caring about bidets and it did go on for a while, but it's so silly that I like yeah, that. I, I, yeah. If you go with, that's one where the premise is so ridiculous yeah. that if that, yeah, that was definitely a, what they call the 10 to one. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. All right. Um, do you have any, you never saw, saw swingers. So, uh, right. what else is on your list? Okay. So I want to, so looking at this, I want to try and see if there's any that fit into what you're talking about, where it's just its own little, uh, short film and nothing really, nothing on my list really comes to mind in that regard. So, so I'm going to jump to the exact opposite of that, which is the whole movie is basically a phone call. Okay. All right. There yep. are four that I can think of. I have, well, I have one that is like that, but then I also have, I don't know if this is on your list. I also have speed, which is why I do have speed on here. Yes. Uh, I don't know if it can, it's not a, the whole movie is a phone call, but the phone right. calls are a huge part of the movie. Yes. I've got, I, in many of these, um, I have, uh, like the name and then a certain line that lets me know what scene I found particularly, okay. uh, uh, powerful. And with speed, let's go with speed. Uh, literally, um, Dennis Hopper saying, I'm sorry, Jack, he didn't make it. It's, it's the death of, it's oh. after the death of, uh, Jeff Daniels. Yeah. And in that moment, just like a character we care about is, is dead. And Keanu Reeves is finding out about it. And in that moment, and there's just something in, in Dennis Hopper's voice that is just so mocking and just the idea of, of 
calling someone or trying to talk to someone only to find that the villain is so in charge Mm -hmm. at that point and that you're not seeing them either. Again, it's this idea of like the mocking on on the part of the villain might as well be coming from inside Keanu Reeves head. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, yeah, that's what gets me the most that one. Yeah. We also get, uh, I hate to go back to the comedy thing after what you just said is very heavy, but um, uh, now the credited screenwriter for Speed is Graham Yost, right? Right. Who, um, him, I've talked about this before, um, the uncredited rewrite was by Joss Whedon, mm-hmm. and Graham Yost himself has said most of the lines that you remember from Speed were written by Joss Whedon. And Joss Whedon, so I'm assuming Joss Whedon is the one who finds the comedic uh, 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 potential in, mm-hmm. in relaying things over the sure. phone. And so I'm thought of, uh, I'm reminded of Alan Ruck's line yeah. when Ken Reeves looks under the bus and sees the C4 and yeah. he says, fuck me. And Alan Ruck, Alan Ruck relay, relays it as, oh darn. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, but uh, okay. Uh, well, that see, there's one on here that I don't know uh, in terms of the whole movie being a phone call. There's one that I'm, I'm sure these are on your list, so I don't want to steal your glory. Okay. Uh, so why, I'm just going to let you say. Uh, well, it's okay. Okay. Here's a, okay. Here's the thing. A lot of people, I think the more famous one of these is Phone Booth. Sure. Which is an okay movie. It's a really cool Kiefer Sutherland performance. I think he's the best part of the movie. Yes. And itself. again, speaking about like the voice, like how important yeah. that is. Um, and we can talk about Phone Booth if you want, but for me, the also written by Larry Cohen movie that is better than Phone Booth by a Country Mile mm-hmm. is Cellular. Yes, that is one of my four. Um, and I do, I like Phone Booth way more than I thought I was going to, but I do think Cellular is the better film uh, on a number of levels. Um, and yeah, it's just. And didn't wasn't he going to write a third one? Like it was going to be his like phone trilogy yeah, or whatever. I feel like there was talk of that, and maybe he did, and it just didn't get the the. Yeah, maybe didn't get the exposure, but um, but yeah, cellular is just such a such a great premise. That's the thing is the phone has led to some really great premises, if not for an entire film, if uh, at least like one really great scene or sequence. Yeah, um, and so it, it's so it's so interesting to me that um, you know somebody recently made a joke. I believe uh, our our friend uh, Kyle Anderson made a joke on Twitter about like how specific our topics get sometimes. Uh-huh. And this one seemed like a topic where it's just like, all right, they're reaching and they need something that's easy to talk about. Cause Tyler's in the middle of finals and we don't want to take too much time. Uh, but the more I thought about it, the more I realized like, yeah, there's a lot of movies that, that hinge on a phone call or, or, the, the depiction of, of somebody receiving or, or desperately trying to get a phone call. And, and it's, and then I, re, then I remembered like, Oh yeah, there are entire movies about this, not merely phone mm-hmm. booth. And then, and that led me to cellular, which I was like, Oh yeah. And then I immediately thought I should own cellular. I yeah. feel like I'd rewatch it. That is one. <laughs> yeah, definitely a rewatchable movie. And it was, I mean, uh, Chris Evans was not a big name. That was one yeah. of his, his first like starring, uh, thing. Cause it was that before the fantastic four movie. I think it was at least right around that time, but it might've been before. Um, and also we can't, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to, you know, this is speculation, but, um, the thing we hear about how, uh, and I've heard for decades about how actresses age out of the good roles, yeah. you know, like why did we decide to stop 
seeing Kim Basinger in movies. I mean, apparently she was in the nice guys, which I didn't, didn't see it's, and she's going to be in the 50 shades sequel. Um, but that's, okay. uh, I mean, that's, <laughs> I'm probably not going to see that either, but Kim Basinger is great. Uh, yeah. She's great in this and she's always great in movies. I've always been a big Kim Basinger fan and it does kind of feel like she, the last, I haven't seen her in anything since 2004, which is when cellular and the door on the floor came out. And those are the last Kim Basinger movies that she's I saw. She's great in both. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a, so years ago, I was uh, interning at a production company that made a very small film that is uh, that has moments um, called While She Was Out. Okay. And it has her and um, a number of other actors, but most notably Lucas Haas. Um, And she's great. She basically carries that movie. And she's this, you know, sort of beaten down, not beaten, but beaten down Mm -hmm. like suburban housewife who has to it's it's sort of like straw dogs in certain okay. in certain ways but she has to fight off um these uh these youths uh that are that are terrorizing her and it's just a there are things that really bother me about it but her performance you know it all it very much falls on her shoulders and i think she does a great job um yeah so uh Let's Seek out Kim, cellular. Let's let's put Kim Basinger in movies again. I, yeah, people who make movies. If you listen to this podcast, and I assume that all the you know studio heads and big name producers, yeah, uh, listen to this podcast. Uh, put Kim Basinger in movies again, <laughs> and everyone else out there, including you, Tyler, if you haven't, should see the documentary that Rosanna Arquette made called "Searching for Deborah Winger," which is uh, oh, which uh, I've heard great things. It about. It is a really good documentary about what it's like to be an actress yeah. in in Hollywood. Yeah, um, she. I did. It was nice to see her in the Nice Guys. Um, now here, uh, but I will say that for whatever reason, Shane Black is so great at writing lead characters that when it comes time and great at writing like henchmen, Uh that when it comes time to write sort of the big bad, he doesn't have a lot left. Is that who convincing her is? Yeah. That's cool though, that she's the, yeah. Um, but she's the big bad in the same way that uh, Corbin Burnson was the big bad in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Like he doesn't even really register. It's yeah. not him. It's not his fault. Like there's just not much to the character. And in the commentary, Shane Black even says, "Like yeah, I didn't really do right by this character. I probably should have put him in more stuff." Um, but uh, uh, side note, okay, got a little rant for you, David. Oh, good. So I've rented plenty in my mind. Uh, as I was thinking of the nice guys, I thought, Oh, right. Kim Basinger and Russell Crowe. It's like a little LA confidential reunion. And then I thought, no, it isn't a reunion cannot have two people. Like, especially if, if something, (laughs) I disagree, especially if it's, if it's ensemble based like LA confidential, okay. Where, you know, cause she also, she interacts with a number of characters. And if there was, when I look at like the, and I don't subscribe to entertainment weekly anymore, but, um, but when they have like their reunion issues and it's let's get as many cast members as we can, that's exciting. But when it's just, when it's just two, it's like, yeah, it's two people that worked together before and now they're working together again. And I don't, and I think it was incidental. Like, I yeah, don't think it still, was, let's try to capture the recapture this. But it's just because it's not intentional. Does not make it not a reunion? Reunion just means reuniting. And if two people are reuniting, it's a reunion. Some reunions are more remarkable than others. Right. What I mean to say is that like reunion, the way people understand it in, in film, like in Hollywood, I I see what you're saying, but I do understand why, like 
uh, why you would think of it as a reunion because Russell Crowe and Kim Basinger together in LA Confidential are very memorable together. It's not yes. just the fact that they happen to be in the same movie. It's not like if Kim Basinger and James Cromwell showed up in another movie together, right. it wouldn't be, oh, an LA Confidential reunion. Yeah. It's the fact that they're so memorable together and yeah. the fact that they haven't appeared on screen together in the, I mean, almost 20 years yeah. uh, since. Um, it does make it notable to me. But what's interesting is I feel like that's a relatively recent idea. With Big Kahuna, nobody said it was an LA Confidential reunion between Kevin Spacey and Danny uh, DeVito. Who, That's by the way, no one saw the Big Kahuna. There's that, yes. <laughs> but like, uh, but honestly, I do feel like that's... And also, it was only like three years later. Uh, Big Kahuna is like, is it 2000? Uh, 2001? 2000. Yeah. yeah. So it's... It probably wasn't as remarkable because it's three years later. I guess not. I guess, when, but when I think of Danny DeVito's character in LA Confidential, he's very seldom in scenes without Kevin Spacey. So the mm-hmm. two are something of a little comedy duo in that movie. Um, yeah. I'll be at a very sleazy one. And so, uh, I don't know, but like I saw this elsewhere on doc, like, uh, an ad on, uh, Dr. Ken, uh, with, uh, well, his name escapes me now. Ken Jung. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, that that's it right i think so okay so you know it's a it's a show built around him and then uh gillian jacobs from community was going to be on and it said like it's like a mini reunion it's like well thank you for at least saying mini but at the same time but i don't think that uh, on television i don't think that's new at all in terms of marketing the idea when uh a famous person is carrying a show let's cast someone else they're known for wor- having worked with. Yeah. You know, like when, uh, Dan Aykroyd had his short lived sitcom soul man. Yeah. Oh yeah. And John Goodman showed up. Sure. Um, yeah. I, so I don't think, I, I think that's yeah. part of that is, and even when you find like when Lisa Kudrow had like uh, web therapy, like she'd have most of the old friends appeared at one point or another yeah. uh, on that show. I think it's something that the, probably the producers encourage because it, <laughs> it draws attention to it. The one that got me about the Dr. Ken thing was like a mini reunion. It's like, you know, the show, you know how the show is constantly on the bubble cause nobody watched it. <laughs> right. Yeah. I don't know how, I don't know who this is attracting. Yeah. Um, anyway, okay. Uh, there so was something you were going to, you said that it had me thinking, Oh yeah, I was, um, Kevin Spacey and Danny DeVito, because it was so short term, if they'd made a third one, then in that, I mean, like I say in 2003, then it wouldn't have been a reunion would have been like partners kind of like we see now with Jesse Eisenberg and Kristen Stewart who have done sure Adventureland, um, American ultra and now cafe society uh, together. They're like, they're like a bogey and Bacall. Sure. It's there are modern day bogey and Bacall. I mean, like we laugh about that because it seems too recent to, to say, but like yeah. in 25, 30 years, assuming humanity still exists then, yeah. uh, it might be, it might be looked on in the same way. It all depends on like what movies <laughs> are people going to talk about Adventureland? I love it. Are people going to talk about American ultra? Likely not. They might talk but about if, cafe society. If Jesse Eisenberg and Kristen Stewart remain, major names yeah do you know what i mean sure um uh, when kristen stewart uh inevitably wins more than one oscar i think it's gonna happen yeah. <laughs> um i'm a big kristen stewart fan by the way i don't know if uh yeah i, I haven't I, watched I, that rolling stones video did you see that that came out uh, no there's a new video for a new rolling stones song yeah 
clue as to why I haven't watched it, um, but it stars Kristen Stewart. When I went and saw the Rolling Stones at a desert trip uh-huh. and they played like one of the, and they mentioned how influenced they are by blues, which is very true. Uh, and, but then like they're releasing their first ever just full on blues album and they were going to play something from it. It sounded very good by the way, but you could just feel the energy of those 85,000 people just drop precipitously. <laughs> They're just like, get back to the hits. I'm 65 years old. I'm not looking for something new. Yeah. Um, no um, offense to any 65 year old listeners, but what, honestly you congratulations for discovering how a podcast works. Um, um, what else do you have in the realm of, entire movies okay compliance um oh yeah that's a good one i can't believe i didn't think of that yeah i mean that's one where just the phone and the idea of not seeing somebody and where just you know our our buddy pat uh just emulates the vocal patterns of a cop Mm -hmm. and that's enough for somebody um right you know, whereas if he were to come in, he has to approximate a cop in so many other ways. He has to show a badge, if nothing else. And so, like, that's one where this wouldn't be possible if it weren't for the phone. Um, and how all I got to do is change one thing about me, and this might be enough to uh, to convince this person. Um, and so... But the other one for me, I think that's even bigger than compliance or phone booth or cellular is lock, which I've never seen. It is very good. And, you know, it's not only is it a guy, you know, locked onto his phone, in this case, speaker phone, um, but he's in a car and it just is that the whole time. And you would think that would get really old, um, but they shoot it in such a way that it doesn't really. And he talks to enough people. I think that variety helps. But that's one where just... I don't know. It's The fact that he's in his car, but also the fact that you just... You can't see any of these people. Um, and, these, and he's dealing with major life issues. I feel like that's something that... Um, he feels so trapped and so constrained he might as well be in like, you know, solitary confinement because there's nowhere he can go and no one can, and he can't see any of his loved ones or people that he works with or anything like that. And so it's all locked on him, obviously. Locked. Uh, Well, I didn't even mean to do that. You're welcome. (laughs) Um, it's all on Tom Hardy's character. And what's interesting is he has to be able to react to what he is hearing but he's also got to keep his eyes on the road. You know, he can't crash. So there's, there's a lot going on with his performance. Like the, the constraints on him, uh, really lead to a very focused performance as it would have to be. Um, now I want to get into the, this is the opposite. These are very brief phone calls that are memorable, uh, throughout, throughout the movie. Um, and I have a number, but I want to start by playing maybe the most memorable phone call of the 1990s. Look at you. <laughs> Let's hear it again. Uh, if we can. Give me back my son! <laughs> it's, it's give me back my son from Ransom, which yes. you'll see, again, in the order that I thought of phone calls, Ransom is number two on my list. Wow. It was after Scream because it's so it's so memorable. It is not um, on my list, but I feel like that's a movie you like more than I do. Uh, yeah, I have always liked it. I like uh, I like bad guy Gary Sinise. Yeah, it works really well. Yeah. Um, Anyway, but uh, brief, but in the in the realm of sort of threats 
over the phone you've got heat uh you know when he says um uh oh i'm talking to a dead man yeah there was a dead man on the other side of this phone yeah Yeah. that's and when it's de niro like peak de niro saying that it's like oh shit i'm dead (laughs) yeah this guy's gonna kill me um and that reminds me that reminds me of one that's memorable to me. I know this movie is, uh, well, it was, I guess it was successful enough to get a sequel that everybody hated, but, uh, Jack Reacher has a okay. part where he, he tells a person over the phone in far less, uh, writerly ways, you know, Robert De Niro says there's a dead man on his phone. Yeah. Jack Reacher just says that he's going to kill this person. And he says, I mean to beat you to death and drink your blood from a boot. It's <laughs> my favorite line from all of Jack Reacher. Uh, and, uh, another exhibit in the case for Jack Reacher being a really good movie, which sure. I've been saying since it came out. And I feel like, uh, not everyone gets it. That's probably right. But it's a really good movie. And then I want to talk about the let's, very end. Oh, go ahead. Let's focus. Do you want to stick with, like, threats? Well, uh, here's one that is a threat not against the person being talked to, but in terms of a memorable, very brief phone call, the very end of Silence of the Lambs. Yep. I've got here in parentheses, Dr. Lecter times, like, five. <laughs> it's like, he's not there, Clarice. Aren't you supposed to be smart? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but whatever. Yes. No, I, I absolutely agree. And it has a, a line that I really like, which is, you know, the world is more interesting with you in it. Uh-huh. The phone call is actually the opposite of a threat for her. Yeah. But somehow becomes so much more ominous. Yeah. It's like, well, if he's not going to kill me, oh shit, is he going to kill everyone else? Well, he's going to have an old friend for dinner. Uh, that's, that's true. The, yeah. That's the line that is memorable. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a good one. Um, all right. I've got the wonderful, uh, dialogue between Adam Sandler and Philip Seymour Hoffman and punch drunk love. Oh, classic. Yeah. I'm glad I, I'm I surprised. I didn't think of that, which is that one there. It's threatening, but it's hilarious at the same time. Um, I have, uh, creepy ass Lyle Lovett in shortcuts. Oh, that's another good talking one. with uh, Andy McDowell. And at one point he's cause he's a, he's a baker who like was making a, a birthday cake for this kid. Casey. So it says happy birthday, Casey. So he's got their phone number. He's got the name of the kid yeah. and they don't come to pick up the cake. And he like keeps calling them and they're in the midst of a crisis. Cause Casey is gotten hit by a car and he's in a coma. And so they're just dealing with that. And so he doesn't know that. So he keeps calling and finally they just are just so dismissive that he gets really angry and, and so he calls and starts being like threatening. Yeah. And at one point he says, he's like, I want to talk about that little bastard Casey. And it's really just horrible. It is, you know? Um, and the fact that like these, but they make up at the end, they do Spoiler. make up at the end. Um, but there's still a little bit of, uh, a little bit of sadness there when she says, I would like to see the cake. And he says, very sad. He says, I threw it away. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that him saying like, I want to talk about that little bastard Casey who is currently in a coma and, yeah. and going to die. Um, yeah. that is a pretty, pretty rough moment. Um, let's see insomnia, specifically the Christopher Nolan insomnia where Robin okay. Williams is calling, uh, oh, Al Pacino right, yeah. and Robin Williams has a very haunting voice when he uses it a, a certain way. Yeah. And it's very haunting in that film. Uh, we overhear, uh, somebody's death in Halloween uh, over the phone. Let's see. Uh, and then I don't know if I'd say this is, uh, a threat, but this is, um, a moment of intense, um, well, tension and it is in the departed. And it is when, um, I, I believe, uh, I don't remember who calls and who answers, but basically it's Matt Damon on the phone with DiCaprio and there's just a long silence because I think at that point DiCaprio realizes that he's talking to the rat that that allowed uh, Martin Sheen to die 
And so they're like, he answers and they're just waiting for each other to talk because they know like, you know, there's a dead man on the other end of this phone. And, uh, it's, 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 that's a movie that again, we've said it before. I don't enjoy it that much, but there's so much good about it. And it's just, you know, it just pulls you in and it's a film that I feel like I could rewatch over and over again, even though I don't think it's that great. Um, and it's for moments like that, like really getting to really understanding the weight of what we're watching, uh, that Scorsese gets to and that both actors understand. That's one where they're on the phone and them not talking on the phone for a while is what's exciting. Um, sorry, I'm trying to call up another clip from the, from the nineties, but, uh, well, uh, you mentioned Halloween while we're on the, um, uh, uh, on the, uh, topic of scary movies. I think, you know, scream obviously is terrifying. I think yeah. maybe the single scariest phone call for me in all of movies is in lost highway. Oh, damn. Uh, yeah. Robert Blake hands him the phone and he says, I'm in your house, hands him the phone. And Robert Blake is also on the other end of the phone. I, how did I not remember that? Oh, that's so frustrating. That's yeah, perfect. It gives me chills yeah. in the moment. And even, even when I think about it now, it, it, it still gives me, gives me chills. All right. Can I play another brief clip? Sure. I'm almost done. And we got to wrap up. The whole point of this is it's supposed to be a short episode. That's why we're phoning it in. Right. Okay. Um, but here's a clip. What can I do for you? Show me the money. I couldn't find the clip of Jerry Maguire saying it yeah. without the whole like two minute scene, which right. is not what I want. But um, that's another yeah. uh, Jerry Maguire's <laughs> on here. Okay, um, specifically just like a very manic Tom Cruise just screaming it into the phone is quite Show hilarious. Me the money. Um, and he also says, "I love black people," which is funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, I really like Jerry Maguire. I think um, I do too. I'm not. I, I, I increasingly I'm not really a big Cameron Crowe fan. I think that a lot of people are feeling that way yeah. as he's. Uh, is diminishing returns in terms of uh, his movies, but Jerry Maguire is good. Yeah. Um, and I also will go to bat for Vanilla Sky. As would I. And, you know, uh, it's weird that it, between the two of us, this is a hot take. Almost famous, not as bad as we thought. <laughs> Everyone else loves it. It is, <laughs> it is like many people's like favorite film of all time, but in this room, you don't really like it that much, and I, there are things I like about it, but as a whole, I don't love it. Um, I think it's a lot less, I think it's a lot more shallow than it thinks it is. Uh, yeah. And it feels too much like Cameron Crowe talking to the audience through the characters. Sure. uh, Sure. In a a lot of parts. And uh, thankfully he has good actors that like are Mm -hmm. able to, I think Francis McDormand is great in that movie. Um, and the character is, is different enough from the other types of characters that when she talks, even if it's just Cameron Crowe saying, you know, saying something through her, it, feels so notably different. Yeah. But you've got two, like essentially two main characters who I think have gone on to become better actors, Patrick mm-hmm. Fugit and, um, Kate Hudson. Sure. Um, but I don't think they're very, either one of them is that good in, in the movie. Uh, I think they seem like young actors. Who yeah. Patrick Fugit has definitely gone on to, to become a more, a more nuanced actor and with a pretty good comic timing as well. I, I think I, I really like him in gone girl. Yeah. He is, uh, um, he and, he and, uh, uh, Kim Dickens. Are, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and then I, okay. I only have a few more. Okay. Well, I don't know how we've gone this long. Let's get into comedy for a second. I don't know how we've gone this long without talking about Dr. Strangelove. Yeah, that's top of my list. Um, uh, I also, 
Uh, I'm not going to call up the clip for this one. I got to stop doing that because we're running out of time. But another great. And that's never been the podcast we are. There's that as well. But this is, I think, a, a topic that lends itself to it. Sure. But another great comic uh, soundbite line from a movie is I'm in a glass case of emotion. Yeah. Uh, from Anchorman. It's on here. That's very funny. Um, do you have anything more to say about Dr. Strange? I feel like you and I talk about this movie so often. Yeah. Uh, well, that's understandable. Uh, yeah. The, um, the monologue, it's essentially a monologue and I've performed it as a monologue, mm-hmm. uh, where he's talking to premier kiss off. Um, and this is a perfect example because so far we've mostly talked about hearing both sides. This is one where we only hear one side and that's what makes it so funny is you can infer not merely what Premier Kissoff says or yeah. asks, but also the childlike way in which he asks it. Yeah. You know, um, can I bring up some comedy nerd stuff? Sure. Do you, do you think has that, has the impact of that scene diminished the more you've realized as you get older, that Peter Sellers was kind of ripping off what Bob Newhart was doing in his comedy. Um, Cause that was like the, the button down mind of Bob Newhart right. was out before that. Yeah. Right. So it's, it seems preposterous to think that Peter Sellers wasn't influenced by Bob Newhart doing the one sided yeah. phone call thing as a bit. It doesn't bother me just because the, I think it fits with the larger fabric of the, of the film, mm-hmm. um, which is, it's weird that a lot of that film, a lot of the comedy coming out of that film is kind of quiet. Uh-huh. Um, just characters trying to like, just some kind of dim characters or at least self-serving characters trying to come to grips with what is happening and the idea. And yeah, it's, it very much could be a Bob Newhart premise, which is calling, uh, the Russian, uh, premiere in the midst of a nuclear, uh, meltdown, but he's drunk and now we have to navigate <laughs> that. Like that's absolutely a Bob Newhart thing, but it doesn't keep me from enjoying it. Cause I think there's, it, it is just, cause when I think of cause when I listen to Bob Newhart, he does have a very specific cadence and I don't think Peter Sellers is, is approximating that. Okay. Um, yeah. You know, like when know, he's, he's doing like the stammering, which is sure. That's um, a Bob Newhart thing. But there, but the way, like when he goes, like he goes up, he gets kind of high pitched at some uh-huh. points. Like there's no point getting hysterical, you know, <laughs> stuff yeah, like that. And then my all time favorite moment from that whole film is, you know, one of our base commanders, he had a, well, he went a little funny in the head and he went and did a silly thing. Well, I'll tell you what he did <laughs> that. Like, I'm glad you're laughing. I, ex- I, I say that to other people and they're like, yeah, that's funny. It's like, no, you don't understand <laughs> yeah. how funny that is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, cause it's a complete, I'm talking to a child cadence. Um, um now I only have one more on my list that I want to mention. Okay. And this is one, this is a silly one, uh, or it's silly to bring it up because it's not, I think most people wouldn't consider this objectively memorable phone okay. call, but it's memorable to you, Tyler, because of where you used to live. And this is the phone call at the end of the Bourne supremacy <laughs> where we find out, well, a, we find out Jason Bourne's first na- real name. Yeah. Um, but more importantly, yeah, we find out that he was born in the small town of Nixa, Missouri, yeah. just south of Springfield, uh, which is where you lived. Not you had you didn't live there when this movie came out. You already right. moved away, but it's yeah. where you lived when I met you. Yes. Uh, and it was what's funny. Like uh, I was uh, like thinking about it this week. Like what did the people sitting in a movie theater in Nixon, Missouri think? And I went like, Oh, I guess they were sitting in the movie theater in Springfield, exactly. Missouri because there's no movie theater yeah. in Nixon, Missouri. At this Missouri. point, even Ozark has gotten a movie theater, uh, <laughs> but Nixa too small. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it was the first, when I first heard that, I was like, what, <laughs> what the hell? 
<laughs> I'm not used to hearing the words Nixon, Missouri on screen. Yeah. This is ridiculous. <laughs> um, yeah, it's much less said by Joan Allen in a Bourne movie. Yeah. Everything about this is ridiculous. I might buy it in a Christopher Guest film, but like <laughs> this, it just seems so but strange. This is why I think much like the citizens of Detroit lobbied to have a statue of RoboCop built in the uh, yeah. town center. I think is there is I, I, I've I've been to Nixa only to go to when I was in college, go to your house like. Mm-hmm maybe once or twice. Yeah. Um, is there like a town square? Is there a main street in Nixon? There's a main street, but it's, it's full of like empty businesses. Like it's, yeah, that's it, the Walmartification of small town America. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, unfortunately, uh, the Grover's corners is no more. Um, yeah. Uh, North stars hollow anyway. Um, but there should be maybe in, in an attempt to revitalize the main street business, sure. town square statue of Jason Bourne in Nixon, Missouri. Why Absolutely. Not? That Why sounds, I, I feel like they could probably get behind it if we had any money. Um, <laughs> okay. So I have several more to mention, uh, and I'll rattle them off and I can, I'll talk about them where I feel necessary. There's a lot of great phone scenes in Moneyball, but there's oh. one sequence specifically where Brad Pitt is calling various owners and try and pitting them against each other. And it's all, it's not one shot, but it's all one scene. It's an extended scene. And you see him like emoting and getting like really frustrated, but also really victorious mm-hmm. while he's trying to stay cool, uh, on the phone. And it's a wonderful sequence. It's, it's a beautifully written, wonderfully acted. Um, and, uh, let's see, uh, let's see, Jerry Maguire, uh, the theater phone call on the master, I think is just such a wonderfully yeah. surreal moment. Yeah. Um, speaking of comedy, uh, there's a wonderful moment with phones in, uh, in the loop where two people are getting a phone call from Malcolm. Uh, wait, what's the name? Malcolm Tucker. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, uh, and they're like, how's this happening? And it cuts to him in the limo with two phones, <laughs> a phone on each side of his head <laughs> and just looking angry as hell. It's a nice visual gag. Um, and then, uh, let's see, there's a wonderful, you haven't seen this film, but there's a really wonderful scene in Frost Nixon mm. where, uh, it's, it's the, it's the night before the, when, the, the day the interview goes really poorly for Nixon and he calls David Frost and he's drunk and he just mm. like reveals all of this stuff about his philosophy and just feels so, and he's trying to create a sense of solidarity because they both started from like meager, a meager place. Um, and it's a, it's a wonderful scene. Is and that, then, um, is that a, um, Ron Howard? Movie? It is. It is. Um, so which one would you say is better as far as Ron Howard movie phone calls? Is it Frost Nixon or is it possibly Give me back my son! What's odd, because you haven't seen Frost Nixon, what's odd is that there comes a moment where he's like, give me back my son. <laughs> um, and it's just like, that's an odd choice, but I guess he is drunk. So um, there's a wonderful uh, phone sequence. There's a few of them, actually, but uh, the one I'm thinking of in Sideways is when he's leaving a message on, when uh, Paul Giamatti's character is leaving a message on Virginia Madsen's machine. And, you know, he he... And he just reveals everything about himself. And, mm-hmm. and it's a really nice moment. Um, then the phone plays a big role in Glengarry Glen Ross. Um, 
Oh, sure. Yeah. And it's so tragic because you hear, especially with Jack Lemmon, um, maybe exclusively with Jack Lemmon. Now that I think about it, um, where you just see him go into like salesman mode and then just slowly, but surely deflate, Mm -hmm. uh, as the person just is less and less interested. And I think that's really powerful. There's a nice phone sequence and adaptation between Meryl Streep and Chris Cooper, where they decide they, where she gets really high and they decide they want to mimic a dial tone. Um, that's 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 a nice moment. And, uh, and in, in American Buffalo, uh, the phone does play a pretty big role and ultimately is the thing that uh, Dustin Hoffman uses to uh, bash Sean Nelson over the head. And maybe he did it for real to bring things back to where we started. <laughs> um, so, and, and there are others that I, that I wrote down, but I didn't, uh, it didn't seem that important to me. Um, uh, I did just rewatch the insider. And so when, when, uh, Al Pacino is saying like, get on the fucking phone. Like uh-huh. he's on his phone a lot in that film. Uh, there's a nice sequence. His, in his the, giant cell phone. <laughs> his, his, yeah. His, the brick with an antenna. Yeah. Um, uh, various phone things in citizen four, but that's, that's a documentary. Uh, the ring. Oh yeah. People get a phone call and say, you're going to die. Yeah. Um, I like in home alone. There's a fun thing where he's calling the cops and they just are not interested. Uh, and, and, and I think, um, and Catherine O'Hara also calls the cops and there's mm-hmm. that one guy who's obviously eating a donut. He's like, you want us to go over just to check on him? Like so incredulous uh-huh. as to what she wants. But, um, but yeah, so, uh, I think that's, I think that's about it, but this, this was a fun episode. Yeah. And honestly, I bet there's tons that I'm not even thinking about. So listeners, yeah, that's yeah. what the comments are for. Yeah. Yeah. Let us know what scenes we didn't think of. Also, let us know if I should play more clips from YouTube from my phone into the microphone. How weighted is my vote? <laughs> I would say super weighted. Okay, good. Because yeah. And my vote is also going to be no, because okay. <laughs> it kept me from paying attention to you. Yeah. Yeah. That was uh, disheartening. I look over and David's looking at his Just phone like, and, I, and you pulled out earbuds at one point. Was that so you could listen to make sure you could hear it? Uh, it was, uh, I pulled out earbuds to plug in because I didn't know if an ad would play first. Oh, God. So I it. wanted to play it through so that I could just replay when got it was time. It. Okay, yeah, you really That's... put a lot of thought into that part yeah, of I the should... episode. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I just think I deserve some credit. Uh, sure. Uh, you can find us at battleshipretention.com. You can, uh, this is where you can comment. You can email us at david at battleshipretention.com or tyler at battleshipretention.com. You can follow uh, Tyler on Twitter at tylerpretension. Uh, your other podcast is called yep. more than one lesson and there's also uh, worth playing for. Yes. Uh, anything going on over there right now? Uh, more than one lesson. Like I just recorded a little mini. So that's actually more life stuff than movie stuff. So, okay. you know, obviously, and because the Christian show life stuff means uh, God stuff. So if you're not interested, don't listen because <laughs> I'm not in the mood <laughs> and worth worth playing for is about survivor. Yes. Um, my other podcast is still on hiatus. It's called, Hey, watch this. It's about TV, but I am taking steps toward bringing it back. Hopefully in January, um, I say hopefully in January, but it might end up being, uh, post Oscars because you and I, um, tend to be very, very busy between now yes. and the Oscars. Um, so it might end up being post Oscars, but I'll try and get back into it, uh, in January. Um, other than that, thanks for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.
This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.